It is a common experience in the Christian life to grow weary against the struggle against sin. In fact, it's easy to become discouraged as we confess our sins only to find ourselves repeatedly committing those very same sins that we have confessed and repented of. We wonder if we are ever going to consistently escape our sin and live more godly lives. We wonder if that is even possible. Well, this morning, we find that there's hope for us yet. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, which we sang this morning, was himself the object of God's great grace. He had the sordid past as a slave trader, and he lived a, a profligate life. But he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and over a period of time, eventually forsook the slave trade and actually became a preacher of the gospel of Christ. John Newton, in his testimony, said, and I quote, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once was once I used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. This morning, we want to consider the progress that we can make in our Christian lives, that it is possible for us to be more godly. We can, in fact, live a godly life, and we might ask ourselves, how can that be possible? And the answer is, it's possible by God's enablement. God, by his grace, has given to believers both what it takes to come to faith and to live a godly life. The key verse this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I invite you to look there with me. And especially the first portion of this verse, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us everything that we need in order to not only have spiritual life, but also to be godly. So this morning, I begin by looking at our theme, which is the grounds of encouragement that we can live a godly life. The grounds for encouragement that we can live a godly life. The first ground for encouragement that we can live a godly life is the transformation that took place in Peter's life. Again, it says in verse 3, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The us in verse 3 refers to Peter and to those to whom he is writing. We find that God had given to Peter all that is necessary to pertain to life, that is, for him to be born again, but also to be transformed in his character that he lives a godly life. So this brings us back to verse 1. If you notice in verse 1, we want to look at how Peter refers to himself. 
It says in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It is noteworthy that Peter refers to himself as Simon Peter. Why that is noteworthy is because it's a bit unusual. This is unlike the manner in which he refers to himself in the beginning of 1 Peter, where he simply refers to himself as Peter. 1 Peter 1.1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here he refers to himself as Simon Peter. And in referring to himself as Simon Peter, Peter is emphasizing the great transformation that has taken place in his life. The emphasis is upon the work of God in Peter's life. God had transformed a Simon into a Peter by giving to Peter spiritual life and all that was necessary for godliness. <laughs> Remember, it is Jesus who gave the name Peter, to Simon. Mark 3.16 says, He, that is Jesus, appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. The occasion and significance of Jesus giving Simon the name Peter is found in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16 it reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say that you are John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now what is stressed is that the work that God had done in Simon's life. It was the grace and goodness of God that had brought Peter to the place of believing in Jesus. That is what made the difference between Simon and all of those others who thought that Jesus was Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. For it tells us in verse 16 that Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, for my Father has revealed this to you. God has made this known to you. Furthermore, Jesus is going to be made a rock. Uh, excuse me, Peter is going to be made a rock. Matthew 6, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter which means rock. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is going to be greatly used of God. He's going to be a rock. But there's a tremendous progression that takes place in Peter's life. He doesn't become a rock overnight. This reference to Simon, Peter, is of great significance. For Jesus would refer to Peter as Simon when he's emphasizing Simon's weaknesses. As Jesus warns Peter that Peter will deny Jesus, Jesus refers to Peter as Simon. 
Luke twenty two thirty one, an incident quite latter than to what we are looking at right now. Luke twenty two thirty one. Listen to the words of Jesus, Simon. Simon. Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Well, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said unto him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you swift, has desired to have you and to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when your faith fails, I will strengthen you. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. But Peter doesn't end up in just that situation of denying Jesus. The resurrected Jesus appears to Peter again and asks him three times whether or not he loved him. And Peter says, you know that I love you. God brings a tremendous transformation to pass in the life of Peter. He makes him strong. This one who denies, who professes that he will be willing to die with Jesus, but is unwilling to die with Jesus, is going to come to the place in which, yes, he really is willing to die, and in fact does die for Jesus. He dies as a martyr. He dies not denying, but confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a tremendous transformation. A Simon becomes a Peter. So too, God can bring about a tremendous transformation in our lives. Secondly, we see the transformation in Simon Peter's life in viewing himself as a servant of God. Back to 2 Peter 1.1. It's so easy to ignore these introductory verses, but they carry a lot of significance. 2 Peter 1.1 says, Simon Peter, and now this, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, there is a slight difference from the way in which Peter refers to himself in 1 Peter 1.1 with how he refers to himself here in 2 Peter 1.1. In 1 Peter 1.1, it reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Left out the Simon, but he also left out the servant. Here in 2 Peter 1.1, he refers to himself as both Simon and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that significant? For once again, it is stressing the transformation that takes place in Peter's life. In the beginning, early on in Simon's converted life, when 
he comes to know the Lord as his Savior, there was a desire for greatness. Luke 22, 24 reads, a dispute also rose among them, that's the 12 disciples, as to which of them was going to be the greatest. That was their concern. That was their concern right up into the very death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who among them was going to be the greatest? Who was going to have the most prestige? Who was going to have the most authority? Who was going to be having the most power? Who was going to be looked up to? Jesus, in his response, says this, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now, as an apostle, now, after a great work has been done in his life, Peter is no longer concerned with greatness. Rather, he's concerned with being a servant. Though an apostle, though raised to a place of great position and authority, he exercises that authority in servanthood. And it's exemplified in 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter addresses the elders of the church. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 1 and following. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Here he places himself on equal footing with the elders. I, too, am an elder among you as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Listen to what he says to these fellow elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Be servants. Peter had learned the lesson that he was to be a servant in his leadership. And not only had he learned the lesson, but he now became the model of that servant leadership. He had been transformed. He was growing. He was developing. He was becoming more godly. A Simon is becoming a Peter. A servant is becoming an apostle, and an apostle is becoming a servant. So now Peter is appealing to believers as his equals. He is not superior to them in any way. Look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And now look how he refers to these fellow believers. To those who obtained a faith... And here's the key of equal standing with ours. With equal standing is ours. Peter is not elevating himself above the other believers. And he is saying to his fellow believers, my faith 
is no different than yours. The ground of my acceptance is the same as the ground of your acceptance. Though believers have faith in varying degrees that results in some having more joy and peace than do others, nevertheless, all faith is of the same value and same worth. That is, it produces an equal standing before God. True faith in its weakest form is still of unmeasurable value and worth. All faith brings us into the same relationship to Jesus Christ. All faith causes us to be born again. All faith unites us to the Savior. All faith shares in the same spiritual promises. All faith exalts us to the same privileges. And all faith results in the final same blessings and eternal glory. That standing that is referred to in verse 1 is to be found not in the believer's own personal righteousness, but that standing is to be found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is both God and Savior. Verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, and now this is the, the standing that we have, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as spiritual life is not obtained by means of our own efforts for righteousness, so too godliness is not to be obtained through our own efforts and making ourselves righteous. That is essential in this passage. That righteousness comes not from ourselves, but through Jesus Christ. Godliness is to be obtained in not presenting ourselves as righteous to God, but rather a further seeking of God's righteousness to be conferred upon us. Notice verse 3. The divine power has granted, that is given, that is bestowed to us all, all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is his power at work in us that produces true godliness. It is not us pulling ourselves up by our foot, by our bootstraps, and by our own resolve, by our own commitment, by our own dedication, that we are becoming godly. But rather, it is bestowed, given, granted, by the power of God at work in us. It was God who brought the transformation to Peter's life. It wasn't Peter. And it is God who brings the transformation to our lives and not ourselves. The life that is being referred to as spiritual life. Godliness is that which results from and is to characterize that life. And both life and godliness is granted or given to us. Not earned, merited, or achieved by us. And both life and godliness is to be found in Jesus Christ. The reason we can have hope for a righteous life is because our hope is not in ourselves. But our hope is in God and what he will do through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second ground for encouragement 
that we can live a godly life is that it is accomplished through an ever-deepening relationship to Jesus Christ. The second ground for encouragement that we can live a godly life is that it is accompanied through, excuse me, accomplished through an ever-deepening relationship to Jesus Christ. Notice verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see, that granting comes through a knowledge of Jesus Christ, an intimate, personal relationship to Jesus Christ. We are born again through faith in Christ, but we also grow in our godliness through that very same faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. The growth in our relationship to God is seen in the words multiplied. Verse 2. Verse 2 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In referring to grace and peace as being multiplied, it's talking about it's increasing, its development, its growth. That we need to experience more grace and more peace. In particular, the growth that is to be had is seen as grace and peace. I'm not going to take the time this morning to look at the number of times, and it is so often repeated in the epistles, this prayer that you would grow in peace and grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace in the scriptures is not to be understood as vain repetition. It is not simply a greeting or salutation that Peter gives that has no real significance. But rather, grace and peace is often mentioned because it is so universally needed and beneficial. That which we stand in need of is more grace which results in more peace. We need a greater appropriation of God's grace, which results in greater peace in our lives, especially as we seek to live a life of godliness and contentment before God. Peter needed to learn that though he said initially that he was willing to die for the Lord, he had to learn that the spirit, the, excuse me, the flesh was weak, even though the spirit was willing. We need to understand the weaknesses of our flesh. Our inability to live godly lives, even as Christians, by our own efforts. We need God's grace. We need the grace of God to live a transformed life every bit as much as we need God's grace to be born again. Every bit as much. We must constantly marvel at and reply upon, rely upon God's grace to us. A fuller, deeper understanding of grace helps us to realize the undeserved nature of the promises that he makes and the grounds upon which they are 
made. Spiritual growth in our lives is a growth that flows from grace. Grace is what transforms the life of the believer. It's the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then it says this, against such things there is no law, meaning that you can't just simply pass some kind of resolution that says we are going to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, godliness in our lives by our own resolve. Rather, it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is that which is produced by the Holy Spirit in us. Which brings us then to the third ground for encouragement that we can live a godly life. And that is the promises that God has given to us. The promises that God has given to us. Notice verse 4. By which he has granted to us precious and very great promises. So that through them, that is the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through sinful desires. These promises that God has given to us based on our relationship to Jesus Christ is that which is going to cause us to become partakers of the divine nature. God gives us great promises concerning both what he will do and also what he is willing to do for us. That which he does is make us partakers of the divine nature. Verse 4. That through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now what does that mean? Partakers of the divine nature. The Puritan Alexander Nesbitt says this, and I quote, not partakers of the infinite essence of God, which cannot be divided or imparted to any creature, but of such heavenly qualities as to make them in some weak measure like their heavenly Father. To be partakers of the divine by nature is to be like God. That is what godliness is. Godliness is God-likeness. Godliness is what we are at our core, our essence. It is not just our actions and not just our deeds, but it is our very being where we are loving, where we are kind, where we are generous. And yes, those qualities are going to manifest themselves in deeds. But it is the qualities themselves, it is the attributes that are akin to the very attributes of God is what makes us godly. And he has promised 
to perform that work in our lives. He has promised to make us godly. This transformation of life into a likeness of God or a likeness of Christ is the result of God's calling. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He has called us to his very own glory. His glory being his person, his nature, his attributes. He has called us to be like him. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we have the command, Be ye holy, for I am holy. He has called us to a Christ-likeness. And the idea of the word call is very significant. For the call elicits a response. We often refer to ourselves as being chosen by God, which is certainly a biblical idea, and it's a biblical thought. It speaks of a decision that God has made concerning our well-being and our relationship to God. He has chosen us. But now we are introduced to this word that he has called us which speaks of his summoning of ourselves, which is an effectual call. As he calls upon us, we respond by his grace. And it says he called us, verse 3, to his own glory and excellence. There is what has been referred to by many as the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation is given to us in Romans chapter 8 verse 30 and it reads, and those whom he predestined he also called. So he predetermined, he predestined, he declared ahead of time what he was going to do. And now here are a chain of events. He predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, which means declared to be righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And notice all of those are in the past tense. He called, he justified, he glorified. Second Peter 1.3 said that he called us to his own glory and excellence. Meaning that we are going to be with him in glory. We refer to that as heaven. The place where God's glory is manifested. But not only is it a place, it is an experience. 
we behold the glory of God. And the scripture says that when we shall behold him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That there's going to be this incredible transformation of life and character. When we are in heaven, we will not lie. When we are in heaven, we will not steal. When we are in heaven, there will be no corrupt thought that proceeds from our heart or from our mind. We will be like God. Holy. Righteous. Not infinitely so. But without sin. He has promised us that end. And every single child of God is going to experience it. But having that end, we are now on a road. We are on a journey. A destination. Of being in the very presence of God. With glory and excellence. And as we are on that road, as we grow in our knowledge and relationship to Jesus Christ, we are conformed more and more to the very image of the Lord Jesus. Romans 8, which leads up to the, the great chain of salvation, says, All things work together for them or good that love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to become formed to the image of his Son. All things are working together to make us more like Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we divorce those two verses from each other and we just simply say all things work together for good. But the good is that he is making us more like the Lord Jesus. We call that progressive sanctification. That God is at work making us different from what we used to be. We can say with John Newton, I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I will be, but I'm not what I was. Every one of us this morning ought to be encouraged as we look back on our lives and we see God at work. We see how God has been growing us how God has been increasing our faith, how God has been enabling us and equipping us and reassuring us of our relationship to him. The deeper we go, the more we develop our understanding of grace in our lives, the more at rest and peace we will be the more we understand that salvation is totally a work of God, the more we are going to plead for that righteousness and that holiness to be manifested in us. It isn't what we are going to try to conjure up from ourselves, but it is what we are going to beg for before God. It is why Paul repeatedly prays that you would grow in your grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way it's going to come. That he confers it. 
Just as we were dependent upon the grace of God initially for our faith, we are dependent upon our God for our growth in faith. Even as the disciples, when they heard that they were to forgive their brother 70 times 7, their response was, Lord, increase our faith. Let us believe in your power to transform a life. Our world does not believe that people can change. The best that our world can do is just label behaviors. Tell people why they are the way they are. But there is no hope for their change. And sometimes, if we aren't careful as Christians, we can buy into that and think there's no hope for other people changing, and yes, even for us to change. And the reality is, he has promised. He has promised to bring about a complete transformation of our hearts and our lives. It will be brought to completion as we stand before him. But right now, we are on that journey. Now, this is an introduction to verse 5. So if you look with me at verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith in virtue and virtue with knowledge. This very reason. The reason is that he granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the comparison that is in this world because of sinful desires. So what are we to do? Answer increase in godliness, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, to virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with true love. Manifest this godliness. But it is based on the promises of God. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes back to our relationship to Jesus Christ, our knowledge of him to reflect on what he has accomplished to Understand our standing before God is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. This work that we are to do, again, isn't just simple resolve. It is an active dependence upon God. It is a cry for more godliness and for more holiness. It is an endeavor to deepen our knowledge and relationship to Jesus Christ. That's why we read the scriptures. Not just so that somehow we earn a blessing, but we read the scriptures so that we might know him and understand his will, be aware of his promises, 
and call upon the Holy Spirit to make us a new and different people. We can live godly lives through the empowerment, the equipping, the enablement of God. So let us determine to live a godly life. And in that determination, let us never lose sight of the ground of encouragement. First, the transformation that is taking place in our lives and others. Realize what God has already done. Think of the apostles, not just Peter, James, John, what they were and what they became. Think of the godly people we know in our midst, what they were and what they have become. Think about our own lives and reflect on the progression of grace that we have experienced, how we have grown in our understanding, how behaviors have changed, not that we are sinless, but we're not what we once were. Let us be encouraged, knowing that our faith is of equal standing before God. It isn't that Peter was a super Christian. It wasn't that his faith was different than our faith. Jesus said that I will pray for you. That's what made the difference in Peter's life. That's why after he denied the Lord, he was willing to die for the Lord, for the Lord was praying for Peter. It's significant that in the garden, Jesus comes up to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, could you not watch with me for an hour? Could you not pray? He slept. He had so much self-confidence, he didn't know that or didn't feel that he needed to pray. Simon, Simon. But Simon became a Peter. We have the great promise that Jesus is in heaven interceding for us. He has promised to pray for us. John 17 says, he is not praying for the world, but he is praying for those that you have given me out of the world. He is praying for us that our faith will not fail. And it will not fail. We will be in his presence, for we have these great promises. Back to 1 Peter. We have an inheritance that is reserved 
that's undefiled, that is incapable of corruption, that is reserved in heaven for us, we will be accepted because we have this great high priest who is praying for us. And he's praying for us every day. And what we need to do is respond in like manner and pray for his work to be accomplished in us. That we don't hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. That we don't try to trump the work of the Holy Spirit. That we embrace our weaknesses. And we supplicate for his strength to be made perfect in us. Let us trust in the promises of God. If all that he will do and all that he is willing to do. He is willing to make us a godly people. May we seek his godliness. May we seek to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. May we understand what true godliness is. It does not consist in things of touch not, taste not, handle not. It consists of an inward heart. That from that heart flows praise and glory and that which builds up others. That which demonstrates love for God and for our fellow neighbor. That can't be produced by law. That can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. May God grant us his spirit. May he work in us mightily. His honor and glory and praise. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would conform us more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus. May we understand more and more of your grace and how we are constantly in need of that grace. That grace isn't something that is once and done. Grace is not simply that which brought us to a saving knowledge of yourself and then has departed. But grace, grace, God's grace, infinite grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Lord, by your grace, Conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. Help us to escape the corruption of our flesh by your great work of the redemption that's ours in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the promises in Jesus' name. Amen.